the amazing account of how God intervened in the lives of a childless couple uh, with the news that they would have a special son. And it's found in Judges chapter 13 on page 256. That's Judges chapter 13, page 256. Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. So the Lord delivered them into the hands of the Philistines for 40 years. A certain man of Zorah named Manoah from the clan of the Danites had a wife who was sterile and remained childless. The angel of the Lord appeared to her and said, you are sterile and childless, but you are going to conceive and have a son. Now see to it that you drink no wine and no other fermented drink and that you do not eat anything unclean because you will conceive and give birth to a son. No razor may be used on his head, because the boy is to be a Nazarite, set apart to God from birth, and he will begin, begin the deliverance of Israel from the hands of the Philistines. Then the woman went to her husband and told him, A man of God came to me. He looked like an angel of God, very awesome. I didn't ask him where he came from, and he didn't tell me his name. But he said to me, you will conceive and give birth to a son. Now then, drink no wine or other fermented drink and do not eat anything unclean, because the boy will be a Nazarite of God from birth until the day of his death. And then Manoah prayed to the Lord, O Lord, I beg you, let the man of God you sent to us come again and teach us how to bring up the boy who is to be born. And God heard Manoah. And the angel of God came again to the woman while she was out in the field. But her husband Manoah was not with her. The woman hurried to tell her husband, He's here, the man who appeared to me the other day. Manoah got up and followed his wife. And when he came to the man, he said, Are you the one who talked to my wife? I am, he said. So Manoah asked him, When your words are fulfilled, what is to be the rule for the boy's life and work? And the angel of the Lord answered, Your wife must do all that I have told her. She must not eat anything that comes from the grapevine, nor drink any wine or other fermented drink, nor eat anything unclean. She must do everything I have commanded her. Manoah said to the angel of the Lord, We would like you to stay until we prepare a young goat for you. And the angel of the Lord replied, Even though you detain me, I will not eat any of your food. But if you prepare a burnt offering... Offer it to the Lord. And Manoah did not realize that it was the angel of the Lord. And then Manoah inquired of the angel of the Lord, What is your name, so that we may honor you when your word becomes true? He replied, Why do you ask my name? It is beyond understanding. And then Manoah took a young goat, together with the grain offering, and sacrificed it on a rock to the Lord. And the Lord did an amazing thing while Manoah and his wife watched. And as the flame blazed up from the altar towards heaven, the angel of the Lord ascended in the flame. Seeing this, Manoah and his wife fell with their faces to the ground. And when the angel of the Lord did not show himself again to Manoah and his wife, Manoah realized that it was the angel of the Lord. We are doomed to die, he said to his wife. We have seen God. But his wife answered, if the Lord had meant to kill us, he would not have accepted a burnt offering and a grain offering from our hands, nor shown us all these things, or now told us this. 
And the woman gave birth to a boy and named him Samson. He grew and the Lord blessed him. And the spirit of the Lord began to stir him while he, while he was in Mahanadan between Zorah and Eshtael. This is the word of the Lord. Well, this morning we're going to tackle the subject of Christian parenting. We, that is, Julie, Philip and myself. Well, none of us are experts, but we do all have some experience, some knowledge and a lifetime of observation. Like Manoah's, who was Samson's father, we also share a desire to do a good job as parents. Judges 13.8 that Pam's just read to us. Then Manoah prayed to the Lord, Pardon your servant, Lord. I beg you to let the man of God you sent to us come again to teach us how to bring up the boy who is to be born. Well, you don't actually have to be a parent in order to have a role, actually whether you like it or not, you do have a role, you do have an influence how the next generation grows up. Because you are a model, a good or a not so good one, of how God intends a human being to live if you're a Christian. Now one of the almost unique things, um, well unique advantages of a church community is that children, teenagers, young parents, all of us really, um, have the opportunity to learn from the example of others. If you think about it, there are not many places where an eight-year-old can on a regular weekly basis interact, if they choose, with an octogenarian or a nine-year-old with a nonogenarian. So, in church, you never know who's watching you, watching you in the nicest possible way, to learn from you. Christianity is taught, but it's also caught by the way it is lived out by Christians. So the three of us will now share our contributions, Julie first, then Phil, and lastly myself. Okay, um, so for those of you who don't actually know me, because I'm normally in the 9 o'clock congregation and 6.30, um, but even then I'm not normally in the 9 o'clock service because I'm normally out with the Pathfinders, um, drinking hot chocolate and eating chocolate biscuits, um, amongst other things. Um, Alistair, uh, who's behind the PA desk, and I have been married for nearly 20 years. We've got three children, uh, aged 16, 14 and 11. I work part-time as a community paediatrician, uh, and also part-time for a charity called Lovewise, which you can ask me about later if you would like to. In my main job, I see families with children who have learning difficulties and other problems at school mainly. Um, I've been doing this job now for about 16 years, scarily, and increasingly the concerns that I'm seeing in my clinics are around behaviour problems and emotional and mental health problems. It's all in the news at the moment as well. Some of this is attributable to underlying medical conditions, but family situations and parenting can have a huge impact, both positive and negative, uh, even where there's an underlying medical condition. So thinking about the impact of parenting and family breakdown... Oops, I forgot my slide. Um, 
It's not about laying blame on anybody. It's about looking at something that can have a significant impact on families and society in general and thinking about what we can do to help and prevent it, if at all possible. So I'm going to touch on four areas where we face challenges as parents and as society, and then Philip and Clive are going to uh, respond to those. So the first area is family breakdown. Uh, in 2014, approximately a third of children aged 15 were not living with both their biological parents. And if current trends continue, then any child born today only has a 50% chance of still being with both parents when they reach 15. That's from the Office of National Statistics. And just like any life event, family breakdown has a significant impact on children. They can be unsettled by the changes by spending time in two different households, by new step-families. And children can have a very hard time making sense of all this, and they often can blame themselves. Numerous studies look at various different outcomes, from self-esteem to uh, physical health to educational achievement, and they all show significant benefits to living with both biological parents. So that's the first area. Second area, which I'm sure many of us struggle with, is sort of work-stroke-family-life balance. Today, in about a third of homes, both parents work full-time. And the average mother works 30 hours a week pay in paid employment outside the home, and the average father works about 43 hours a week. This leads to increasing pressures on the family, with limited time available for parents to spend both with each other and with their children. Children, especially teenagers, don't always want to talk when it's convenient to us. It's usually 10 o'clock when they get back from youth group, when we want to go to bed, um, but we have to make time for them. Our society is putting increasing pressure on us that we need to be earning a good income in order to live a particular lifestyle. Society also only seems to value paid work outside of the home and doesn't place value on the role of mothers and of parenting. So the third area is discipline. So there's an increasing problem with parents feeling that they're unable to control their children's behaviour. There's a trend to let small children be in control of so many things, such as what they eat and what they wear, and then parents often struggle then to be in control when they need to be. We want our children to be happy, and we worry that by disciplining them, we'll make them unhappy and potentially damage them. We worry that giving them boundaries and saying no to them will turn them against us, and actually we want them to be our friends. But children need boundaries. They need to know who's in control. And the fourth area, uh, which concerns a lot of us, um, is the influence of peers, and thinking particularly as well about the internet, because actually our children are growing up in a very different world to the one that most of us grew up in. Their world is very much a digital world. Peer pressure has always been an issue, but when I was a child, I could escape to my bedroom and get away from it all. But now children and teenagers can't escape. They're constantly in touch with their friends by text or online. Statistics are always out of date and numbers are rising rapidly. But in 2014, which is quite a long time ago in digital terms, um, a study by Ofcom showed that 70% of children aged 5 to 15 use tablets at home to go online. 40% of 5 to 15-year-olds own a mobile phone. That rises to 80% of 12 to 15-year-olds. 41% of 12-year-olds have a smartphone. 
and that rises sharply to 67% of 13-year-olds. So internet access is readily available and accessible away from supervision. And this internet access brings with it all sorts of issues, such as social media, selfie culture, if you don't, want, don't know what that is, ask a teenager, online bullying, online grooming, and pornography, just to name a few. So all of this can feel pretty daunting and pretty scary as parents or as church members trying to support parents. So I'm going to hand over to Philip and to Clive to give some responses to some of these issues. I'm very happy to chat over coffee if this raised any particular issues for you. Thank you. In case uh, Julie introduced herself, so I'll just introduce myself as well in case you don't know. So I'm Philip, married to Liz. Um, I'm a retired GP and we've got uh, three sons who are now all in their late 20s or 30, and a two-month-old grandchild. So it all seems a long time ago that we were doing the parenting stuff. But um, Liz and I, and also Kathy Hawkins, have uh, started running some of these uh, time-out-for-parenting courses, which are courses developed by um, a Christian charity called Care for the Family. Um, and what I want to do is just quickly whip through just very tiny sample of some of the stuff that we cover in some of these courses um, just to see how you can help and perhaps to help with some of those issues that Julie has just highlighted. Um, there are three sort of basic courses that we do. So the time out for parents, the early years, which is just for naught um, to fives, and then the primary years course, which we've just finished doing one of those courses for parents of children in the five to 11, and then time out uh, for parents for the teenage years. And uh, it, one of the things about these courses is that we don't, or it's, not a, it's not something that we're sort of there as the experts, it, but it's very much parents coming together, sharing what works, what doesn't work, talking about their experiences and learning from each other. That's very much what it is. Um, most of us aren't bad parents, but we just do struggle just with the day-to-day -day, um, business of being parents. Um, and it's been good since we've started doing them that we advertise on the Care for the Family website and we've had people who come from all sorts of places who've come. So just on this last course that we've done, we had someone who came from Newbury and another couple who came from Allsford saw that there was a course on and thought, yep, that's what I want to do. And it's also quite interesting to hear comments. So at the course we've just uh, finished, someone said on Thursday, it was really good. He felt it was good to come because he realized that it wasn't just him who had these issues. You know, he realized that it was a thing shared with other parents. And someone else said it was good to have space and time to think about my parenting. As we, uh, as we start off, we always think about, well, what's the, what's the goal of parenting? As, as parents, as we're bringing our children, what, what are we trying to do? Well, of course, ultimately, we're trying to turn them into adults who will be able to function in the outside world, to be able to cope with all the knocks and bounce back and make good relationships. And, of course, uh, this course is, is for all sorts of people, so it's not just, it's not a specifically Christian course. It uses uh, parenting education theories and, and general good stuff. Um, but of course, we add, um, if we're Christian parents, then we would add to that goal as well. Well, as Christian parents, and I guess Clive is going to talk about this, one of the, well, the most important thing is that we encourage our children in the Christian faith and that they grow up to love and serve the Lord Jesus for themselves. Julie's talked about um, family breakdown. One of the ways to try to stop it, there's a, one of the, a, another little short course called Let's Stick Together, um, which aimed, it's aimed at parents who are who new parents who've just recently had a, had a baby. Um, but it also appears in the uh, 
primary years course, um, and it's applicable um, to all of us in our relationships, and it's also applicable in our relationships with our children as we think about handling conflict and stopping bad habits, and it just is this stop. So think about scoring points, about stopping thinking the worst, about stopping opting out, and about stop putting down. So how easy it is to do this, isn't it? Uh, to score points. You did this. Well, no, you did that. Um, you know, why did you, why did you leave your clothes all over the floor in the bedroom? Well, you're not very good, are you? You leave the bathroom in a mess. Um, or to our child, we might say, mm, you didn't feed your hamster today. Well, you, or no, they might say to us, you didn't feed our hamster today. And then, and then we say, well, yeah, but you're not very good at cleaning out their cage. It's easy to try scoring points, isn't it? Rather than doing that, we should apologize, deal with the issue, don't allow things to get out of control. Swallow your pride and put your relationship first. And then stop thinking the worst. <clears throat> you know, we think, why have they done that? What do they want? So, you know, he bought me flowers. What's he, what's he done wrong? What does he want? Or um, she made herself a cup of coffee, but she hasn't made me one. Have I done something wrong? It's so easy to sort of jump to the wrong conclusions. So make sure your conclusions are fair. Ask questions. Check your assumptions. Don't keep thinking the worst. And then, oh, stop opting out. <clears throat> you know, when an argument is going on, when there's a discussion, it's easy. When it gets heated, it's easy to just think, oh, I can't cope with this. I'm just going off. I'm just, just walking off, really. Well, that's not the right thing to do. You might be feeling under pressure, but try to keep talking or let the other person know you care. Or if it really is that bad, well, ask for time out and suggest another time when you could come back and give it your full attention. And then P, stop putting down. How easy it is to say, can't believe that they're doing the same thing again, that you're doing that again. How stupid you are, or, you know, you're so childish, or you're talking such nonsense. It's so easy to put someone down, but we need to recognize our bad attitude and look for the good things that if it's in our marriage, our partner does, or it's with our children that our, children, that our child does, to compliment them. So that's one little area in which we can sort of work at trying to preserve family life. In the courses, we talk about family traditions and family values and think about how that can also build up family life. And a little bit about um, uh, just very tiny little taste of just a couple of things that we think about parenting, because parenting is hard work, and we think about all sorts of things to help. So just thinking about simple things like child's temperament, in, even in a family of one family with different children, of course, they're not all the same. They have different temperaments. Like our boys had completely different temperaments. And if you don't understand their temperament, then you don't really quite understand their behavior, and understanding that can help. So we talk a lot about, about that. Um, in the primary years course, we talk about attachment. It's really important that attachment happens, that children, little children, form this strong bond with their, with their parents. And that, of course, takes time, and you know, that needs to be something that we have to work out, even though we do have this busy work-family-life balance. And just thinking of this work-family-life balance as well, we just talk in great length at times about children's needs, and we have to think about how we meet all these different needs, their esteem needs, their social needs, their safety and security needs, and their physical needs. You know, as a parent, we have to do that, and we have to work out time to do that. And when we're very busy and uh, rushing around, it's very easy not to recognize a child's feelings, particularly with little children. They often 
um, act out their feelings. They can't express what they want to say, so they act it out. So the behavior is actually a reflection of their feelings. But putting yourself in their shoes just helps you to understand their behavior and can then just help you to sort of deal and to modify and to help them. So it's really good to have empathy, to be able to think, what does it feel like to be you right now? And then we think a lot about sort of how we meet our children's emotional needs, what all those needs are, lots of needs. Um, and just this little quote I was just going to read now, in modern society, raising emotionally healthy children is an increasingly difficult task. If children feel genuinely loved by their parents, they'll be more responsive to parental guidance in all areas of their lives. So in the courses, we spend a lot of time thinking about how we can do that. And then Julie's talked about communications, and particularly with uh, teenagers. Well, we talk again a lot about communication, about listening properly, about how we listen, because it's so easy not to listen. Um, and with teenagers, if we haven't started communicating well with them when they're little, then by the time they get to teenagers, there's no hope. And as Julie said, they, they don't always want to talk at times that are convenient to us, but we have to listen because, as this quote says, a teenager will give up on his parents if he feels they're too busy in their own world to help him shape his. And then just uh, thinking just quickly, that next point that Julie brought up about discipline. Discipline, what is it? Well, of course, one way of thinking about discipline is that discipline comes, think of the word disciple, who is primarily a follower. So a lot of discipline, although there is punishment within discipline, discipline is primarily about training. And uh, we need to think, we do, we talk a lot about boundaries and how we can set boundaries how we, and how that goes on. Um, and of course, children again, different children are going to react in different ways, but they're all to some extent going to try and push against the boundaries. And we talk about how it is hard, and we discuss how, how can we set boundaries and keep to them. And there's some of the reasons why boundaries are important for children. They teach children to respect others and their property, teach children self-control, teach children about acceptable limits, they teach children how to be responsible adults, and they give security, and they keep children safe. And of course, boundaries vary at different ages, and so we talk about um, the ages, um, different boundaries, what sort of boundaries you'd have. So you obviously have a very different boundary at bedtime for a three-year-old as for a 13-year-old, etc., and, and all those other things. So what are the boundaries about mealtimes and television and playing outside and so on? And we do talk about <clears throat> you know, why it is hard. There are all sorts of reasons why it's hard to set boundaries. Um, and we think about how you can achieve it and Sometimes that the older children, it comes partly through negotiation and working through, but then agreeing that there are sanctions and there are rewards, but there are also sanctions if they don't stick to them. And ultimately, we have to set boundaries because if we don't set them, then someone else will. And it's better that our children learn that early rather than too late, really. And then just quickly, loving discipline isn't primarily all these negative things, shouting and yelling, dominating, controlling, criticizing, putting down, hitting, being inconsistent, being cold or detached, but it is primarily training and it's leading by example. It's so important that as parents and as others who deal with, who, who, are, who are around children, that we do lead by our example. And we need to be consistent. So we need to be consistent ourselves, do the same. When we say we're going to do something, do it and stick to it, not, not keep changing. Children don't know where they are if we're inconsistent. And also, ideally, both if there are two parents in a family, then both parents need to 
act in the same way, and discipline needs to be age-appropriate. And then finally, just quickly something about um, keeping children safe. At a young age, we talk about, we think about all the different dangers that there are for young children, and that's going to be very different um, when they're very little. But as they get older, of course, as Julie said, one of the huge dangers now, or one of the things that we need to work out is, is the internet and the online world. And we talk about that, and, and it's a fast-changing thing, but we need to take a balanced view. Some parents, unfortunately, take a very negative view and see technology as negative and ban it all, but that will never last. Eventually, the children are going to start using it. But on the other hand, you can't go to the other extreme and ignore all the dangers and just bury your head in the sand. We need to help our children to use technology for good and uh, to get the good out of it. And another quick little thing to say is we need to be, ourselves or parents, we need to be good role models in how we use technology. So if we're sitting you know, at mealtimes busy on our, on our, on our phone you know, or not concentrating or not talking, well, that's not a great goal, role model. We need to keep up to date as parents. Things are constantly changing. We need to equip our children to make good choices. And then as we think about teenagers as well as all that stuff, there are also all sorts of other pressures that they start to face and we think about the pressures of drugs and smoking and alcohol and sex. And just talking about it, parents talking about it together can find it very helpful just to listen and to learn from other parents and to get um, clues and trips from each other. So thank you for listening and I hand over to Clive. Thank you, Philip. I realise I suppose I should do a bit of biography as well. I'm, well, you know who I am. I'm married to Cathy, who's in the front row, and we have four children who are 30, 28, 25, and 23, and I'm a not like Philip, I'm also a novice grandfather. Um, so we've had Julie flag up what some of the issues are, family breakdown, the work-life balances, um, discipline and peer pressure, and Philip has kind of flagged up some of the resources that as a church we offer by means of these Care for the Family um, courses. Whenever I've seen Care for the Family material, I think, gosh, I must have been a really hopeless father, really. I mean, they seem to have all my thoughts nicely kind of illustrated in the whole thing. But fortunately for my children, they have their mother who compensates for, um, <laughs> for these things. I, tend to, I like naughty children. So when one of mine, when he was about four, we were in what was called CNA, so I don't think it exists anymore, but it's a department store. And there's the escalator. And we're just about to go up. And he says, what's that red button for? Before I had time to open my mouth, the elevator has stopped. And so nobody's going up or down. He found out what that did. It turns it off. Um, I thought that was hilarious, but I know I was supposed to tell him off, really. Or, uh, or numerous times he'd go, uh, he isn't the one that's here this morning, by the way. So I've got a, you, you can tell I'm going to tell the truth because I've got my mother, my wife, and one of my children listening to this. But if he'd go walkabout when he was about four in the town, oh, gosh, I used to think... Where is he? My first thought was, Cathy will kill me, rather than, where is, where is he, really? And, and crawling around in Marks and Spencers on my knees, trying to look underneath all those rows. Now, where are his legs? I got him. He's, he's gone somewhere. Anyway, enough about him. I've got my saintly child here. So. <coughs> 
who are, of course, I wouldn't be allowed to say anything embarrassing about. Right, so family breakdown. Well, uh, being committed Christian parents, both actively involved in the life of a Christian community, will drastically reduce the chances of marriage breakdown. Statistical research is not easy to discover because I guess that there is the problem of defining committed Christian parents both actively involved in the life of a Christian community isn't an easy thing to define. Now I don't keep records and my memory is reasonably good actually. Um, But over the last 30 years... And this is not robust research by any means. It is just anecdotal recollections. I could only think of about of, of 10 couples in the life of our church who have got divorced. There are many others, of course, who have joined us, having uh, one or other of them having usually been the innocent party to adultery or desertion and have come and joined us as married uh, couples. But of the... Of the 10 who are divorced, seven out of the 10, only one of the partners was a church member. And of the other three, the partner who eventually left them had drifted off from church life many years before. In four of the marriages, the man went off with another woman. In six of the marriages, the woman went off with somebody else. Um, in eight of the ten, it was heterosexual. In two, it was lesbian relationship. Now, given the number of adults that make up the life of our church and factoring in, say, a 10, 12% or whatever it is, um, turnover, and multiplying it by 30, you come up with a lot of people. So why is it that the marital success rate in a church like ours, which I've no reason to suppose is much different from our other Christian churches. Why is that statistically far more successful? I think there is a positive and a negative reason. Positively, having God in a marriage in both partners' lives makes a difference. Ecclesiastes 4.12, a cord of three strands is not quickly broken. Ever since the time of the pharaohs, it's been known that three-stranded rope is stronger than rope of one or two strands. And in this uh, verse from Ecclesiastes, Christians have seen an allusion uh, to God, who is, of course, three, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, a community of love and with the intention of being involved in our lives and therefore in the lives of our marriages. He is the one around whom we orientate our lives. He's the one who sets the standards and the values to live by. He is the one who supremely, by the life and death of Jesus, has modelled self-sacrificial living. That's positively. But negatively, he is the one to whom we have to give an account of ourselves, and he hates to see the weaker member treated unjustly. Hebrews 13.4 Marriage should be honoured by all and the marriage bed kept pure, for God will judge the adulterer and the sexually immoral. So we have there an encouragement and we have a sobering warning. The combination do provide security for success. 
Augustine said, love God and do what you will. He was able to say that because God's will and our desires will be in tandem. Then the work-life balance. On the site of Morrison's supermarket, um, there used to be a heavy engineering factory called Thornycrofts. Some of you are old enough to remember it. Some of you probably even have family members who may have worked there. Now, a hundred years ago, a family could afford to buy a house in Brookvale, a three-bedroom terraced house, with just one wage coming in from the husband who worked in the factory. Now, many families need two incomes, either two full-time or pretty near full-time, in order to start buying one. That cannot be progress. Now, there are a whole lot of uh, macroeconomic reasons as to why that has taken place. You've got everything from greenfield site restrictions, so that, of course, the supply of housing is, is severely limited compared with the demand, and so prices rise. There's international economic competition. But one significant reason is that our society favours the individual rather than the family unit. Legislation and fiscal policies strengthen the individual at the expense of the family. And it'll only be when our society decides that the financial cost of family breakdown is deemed to be too much that things will change. Now, there's not much we can actually do about some of those factors, certainly not individually, maybe collectively. But on our own microeconomic level, we can adapt. There are some very simple things. It's obviously an advantage, though not always possible, to live quite close to where you work. You save on commuting time, and that time can, of course, be used to spend with the family. It's also an advantage having other generations of your family around. Um, your brothers and sisters, who are uncles and aunts to your children, your parents who are grandparents to the children, all of whom can be a positive role model to yours. It may be, though, that uh, you decide one of you not to work full-time, and that may mean that instead of going out for uh, Friday night dinners together, you have an Iceland or a little takeaway. It may mean that instead of going to Disney World for a holiday, you go camping, which probably provides much more interaction. It's often those low-cost treats which generate far more fun than the supposedly must-do things. It's also vital in family life to have meal times together and bedtimes with the kids. I know more about the meal times than the bedtimes because often I'd be going out. How convenient at bedtimes, you see. But at meal times, parents can actually listen to the kids and uh, they can talk um, and. Um, you can put a Christian spin or explanation upon you know, their day and their world. Martin Luther called it table talk. Bedtimes, my wife was very good at doing this. She has a kind of voice that you could wake up and listen to the Radio 4 news kind of read to you. And so she's very good with the children. They thought I was boring. And, um, but she could read books with real expression, like the Chronicles of Narnia or um, even Harry Potter, because you could always put a Christian spin on anything that might seem a little bit dark, and then to read a Bible passage and to pray with the children. 
That's quite vital. Deuteronomy 6, 7, speaking of God's commandments, says, impress them on your children, talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. And thirdly, discipline. Philip mentioned that the word discipline can be used in more than one sense. It can, of course, be used to be applied to punishment, but it can also be used in the sense of being intentional about what matters and being organised in your time to achieve it. So what do you want for your children or your grandchildren or for your um, nephew or your nieces or for your godchildren? I suggest that you want them primarily to embrace the salvation that is offered by God through our Lord Jesus Christ so that they'll live life now wisely and that they will enjoy eternal life forever. I suggest that's a Christian parent's number one desire. Now, how do you demonstrate that to them? Well, it could be how you spend your money, although when they're young, it's rather hard for them to work out how that is. But it could also be how you use your time and their time. Now, we as a church are not legalists by any means, but the right use of our time does reflect our values. So, for example, if you were parents and you'd been out to a party on Saturday night and you get home rather late and you're tired, you've had a busy week, etc., and you decide to have a lie-in rather than come to church and so deprive your children of uh, pathfinders or pioneers or whatever they go to, what would that be saying to them about your priorities? So is your pattern of involvement for church on Sunday or for our children's and youth groups during the week a true reflection of your commitment to Christ and your desire for your children's salvation? Are these things your default option or are they merely one of a number of possible options? For example, if it's a choice between a sports club and a church club, which comes first? Now, often there isn't a need for a clash. There is a way of working around it. You can find a club that meets on a time that doesn't clash with whatever they do on a Sunday or on a Friday. Now, I, as a kid, learnt the hard way. If only I'd read the Bible a bit better. See, so when the allure of Sunday football tempted me away from my crusader class uh, when the times changed and there was a clash they happened at the same time and I opted for the football I very quickly broke my arm but I was able to go to crusaders a year later as I was a rather slow learner I started to do judo so on Sunday morning I'd go off to the dojo and the way they operate is the best um, judo person, the black belt is in the middle and you take it in turns to kind of run and uh, fight them and they kind of floor you pretty quickly. In my case they not only floored me but they trapped my arms so as they launched me over themselves instead of being able to roll out of it I became a pile driver, busted collarbone. I would not recommend a busted collarbone I have broken six or seven bones in my body. That is by far the most painful. But I was able to go to Crusaders instead. (laughs) 
Now, had I read the Bible, <laughs> Proverbs 3.12, it's in the Old Testament and the New Testament, or Hebrews 12.6, they say exactly the same thing. The Lord disciplines those he loves. I was fortunate. I later actually managed to go to Crusaders in the morning and play for a very successful team um, called Rough Common, which uh, the name summed us up pretty well. Now, you might laugh, but uh, have you ever played for a team that used to win games 32-0, and we're talking football, not rugby? See, so it all works out in the end if you do what God wants, first of all. So I'd encourage you to let your kids get stuck into our youth groups um, and children's groups, both on weekdays and on Sundays, as well as make use of the weekends away and the summer camps. It's a good habit for them. It reflects your priorities for them. It's an encouragement for the leaders who've given their time in preparation. And it strengthens the camaraderie of the group by being regular rather than being irregular. And that brings me to my last contribution, their peer group. Now, sometimes the church fertility rate manages to produce us five girls and five boys each year. That occasionally has happened, but usually it doesn't. It's not as even as that. You get a load of girls or a load of boys, or you have a weak year and a bumper year. But basically, our children's and youth work works on the basis of a biological foundation. Basically, we Christians breed children, and they then have friends who are attracted to our groups, and they build up a Christian peer group as they embrace the faith. So coming to Glick on a Friday or to Pathfinders on a Sunday means that they are with like-minded kids, which can be a wonderfully kind of relaxing counterbalance if, for example, they are the only child that they know of in their school who is a Christian. And their leaders offer a good alternative example and a possibly corrective one to their imperfect parents. So, in summary, it is, the Bible says, a great blessing to have children. And I suggest to be in a church community that has children, who actually has people of all ages, naught to 95 in our case, is also a blessing. But for that blessing, there is also a responsibility for us to make the right calls for them until they're able to do so for themselves to set a disciplined life that reflects our Christian priorities, to have fun time with them, and to enjoy and love God, to enjoy and love uh, their mother or their father, and to enjoy and love them. They will therefore more likely turn out as assets to our society and hopefully assets to God and his church. As Julie mentioned, we're available over coffee if you want to follow anything up with us. Thank you. Well, there's no doubt that we do require wisdom. Wisdom comes, of course, from Scripture. Um, it also comes from seeing how other believers have uh, applied Scripture to their life. And we sing in our next song the desire to know the perfect wisdom that comes ultimately from our God.